tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, the day before Thanksgiving, but for us Catholics, every day is Thanksgiving, because, of course, that's what the word Eucharist means. Even before I start, we got a word. You know that. Eucharist means thank you in Greek. And Well, I'll talk about it later. All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations. By the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, o Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. This is Revelation, the 15th chapter, or Apocalypse, the 15th chapter, the first verse and following. I, John, now, you know, oh, I'm off. There, There's a controversy about John. There are people who say that John the Apostle, John the Beloved Disciple, John one of the Twelve, didn't write the letters or the Gospel or the Book of Revelation because there was a fellow named Papias who lived oh, in the middle of the of the second century and, you know, uh, well, more toward the beginning, I think, of the second century. He was the bishop, uh, a bishop in what is now Turkey. And uh, he knew all sorts of people from the good old days um, before he died. And he he wrote things and he talked about uh, uh, the elder John and he talked about uh, um John, the beloved disciple, and he, he makes it seem like like they were different people. And, you know, Papias, well, he was, uh, a, he's a great source for certain things. But, you know, he may have been wrong. It's Papias of Hierapolis. I'm, I'm quick looking him up. Um, he was, he lived from 60 to 130 AD and he talked about uh, John the the, the below oh, I've got it I've got it don't don't, don't worry uh, he talked about John uh, the beloved disciple and uh, he talked about all these different people but he seems to to make them two different people well I have found that that when we read something uh, we we kind of read into it or we, we, we assume that we know the situation. 
and you really don't. So uh, people say that the, the, the vocabulary, the language, the style of the book of Revelation is so different from the letters of John and the gospel of John. I look at the gospel of John. First, oh, good grief. I am way off the topic, but I'll get back there eventually. Um, the... the the gospel of oh did i just lose what i know I, I think oh no no i'm i'm I, I know where i'm going and all this sort of thing but the gospel of john um was written very clearly to a specific group of people we have matthew mark and luke these are called the synoptic gospels because they look very much alike they clearly took material from a common source now, people make the mistake, I think, of saying, well, Marx is the simplest gospel, therefore it is the first, and Luke and Matthew leaned heavily on it. I suspect all three of them were leaning on a common source. Uh, and uh, Dr. Peters of NYU, who I often mention, who I, I would be surprised if he was a, a, a fundamentalist Christian. I, I don't know his background, but he's a great scholar. Uh, and he points out that the disciples of a rabbi wrote down what that rabbi said. And in particular, in the case of Jesus, who preached among the Greeks in in the northwestern part of the Holy Land, in the area called the Decapolis, those were Greek-speaking cities. There were Greek colonies in the Holy Land. Jesus, we see him preaching in that area. Um, it is not unreasonable to think that Jesus spoke some Greek. Everybody did. It was very. It was the common language. Uh, Aramaic was the common language east of the Jordan, and Greek the common language west of the Jordan. But it seems that what Jesus said was written down in the Greek language for the benefit of of Greek-speaking followers of Jesus. So, you know, there's no way for us to know that situation. Uh, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the lookalike gospels, synoptic in Greek. And um, the Gospel of John is so clearly different from the rest. And I maintain that's because, according to the same Papias of Hierapolis, who I just mentioned, that he says that the Gospel of John was written to comment on the relationship between uh, uh, the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. Think about it. John the Apostle had been a disciple of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. He said, Follow him, don't follow me anymore. Uh, that, that, that John the Baptist originally had been a follower of, or rather John the Disciple, the beloved Disciple, um, had been apparently a disciple of John the Baptist. And to this day, there are about 60,000 people called the Mandaeans, not hard to look up, M-A-N-D-A-E-A-N-S, who believe that John the Baptist was the Messiah. And we see in the Acts of the Apostles that the disciples run into somebody who'd been baptized with the baptism of John, and uh, they did not know there was a Holy Spirit. Uh, that's, you know, fully at least 20 years after the, the, the execution of John the Baptist, he had followers in Turkey. Um, and so John the Baptist wasn't just a lone voice in the wilderness. He seems to have been a bit of a sect leader. And the ministry of John the Baptist in Jesus 
needed to be clarified. And we see in the second to the last chapter of the Gospel of John, these things have been written that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, who's the you? I have a feeling that you were the followers of John the Baptist. And John the Evangelist is pointing out clearly to the the um, followers of John the Baptist that John the Baptist himself said he wasn't the Messiah, that Jesus was. And that would account for the different language, the different presentation. Do not forget that Jesus himself in some way was associated with John the Baptist. And he would have said things in the language that meant something to the followers of John the Baptist. It is not unthinkable in any way that when you are talking to a different group of people, you're using different language. Now, let's go back to the these Dead Sea sectaries, the Essenes and other little groups who uh, had rejected the, the temple because it was corrupt. It had been corrupted by the political interests of Herod the Great and the Sadducees and all these folks. And uh, they had turned their back on the temple. And they were waiting for the coming of the Messiah who would purify the temple. And that's, I believe, why at the beginning of the Gospel of John, you have the purification of the temple. Now, Dr. Brad Pitry, a man incredibly much smarter than I am, uh, uh, the, he, this, this, he says, no, Jesus must have done it twice. But I look at that and I think, for literary purposes, this is moved to the beginning of the book because that would have interested the people to whom the Gospel of John was addressed. And you look at the Gospel of John, it's all about water, it's all about light, it talks about the Lamb of God. These were categories that would have meant something to the followers of John the Baptist and the other Dead Sea sectaries. And then we see the same kind of language, I think, in the letters of John. But the book of Revelation, why is it so different? Well, look at the sectaries, these, these Dead Sea groups, you know, for want of a better uh, name. Everybody calls them the Essenes, but I think the Essenes were just one group of these people. Uh, um, uh, we know very little about the Essenes, really, uh, but uh, a lot of people think we know a great deal. Well, at any rate, uh, the, the, the Dead Sea, the members of the Dead Sea sects, uh, would have would have had a completely different sort of language, and they were visionary people. We read uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the product of these people, visions. There's the War Scroll, and there are all these visionary scrolls. And so, John the Baptist, or rather John the disciple, the beloved disciple, just because the language of these different uh, literary works is is that language is so. So diverse doesn't mean they were written by different people. That's, I think, an, that's an assumption and not necessarily a logical assumption. So that said, I have no problem thinking that when it says, I, John, despite Papias and despite the different literary styles, this, I think, is the beloved disciple. That's a very solid tradition that goes back to the early church. Saw in heaven another sign, great and awe-inspiring. I was going to make heaven the word of the day, but I've changed my mind. I think I'm going to make Eucharist, which you probably already know, but eh, it's good to say these things occasionally. This in Greek is en urano, which means in the sky. The word uranos means sky. Same word. We, we, we use the word heaven and sky 
interchangeable. Look up into the heavens. It's more archaic in English. When we think of heaven, we think of that place we go if we die in a state of grace. And I don't think that that's wrong to think of it that way. I'm always telling you that we don't go to heaven when we die. We go to paradise, the, the walled garden in which we walk with the king in friendship. Uh, it's different. Jesus didn't say, this day you'll be with me in heaven. Uh, uh, he said, this day you'll be with me in paradise to the good thief. But still, the word heaven is used for different dimensions. It's frequently used in the plural, in the heavens. In other words, this idea that there were different dimensions as you got away from the firm earth, terra firma. So he saw in heaven another sign, great and awe-inspiring. Well, awe-inspiring, we use the word awesome. Oh, awesome, man. It's just a common. This word is, I think it's thaumastos, which means... Uh, if you see something that 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 is thalmastos, you stand there with your mouth gaping open and going zuh. I mean, this is great and 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 well, inspiring of 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 well, awe. I mean, we use that word awesome so commonly that it it it. it um, it loses its its meaning. It's something that that moves you to the deepest emotions. There's fear and there's wonder and there's awe and it, it just means something that stops you in your tracks. So John saw another sign that that stopped him in his tracks. For through them, well, uh, uh, the seven angels with the seven last plagues. Now, the word plague, we know what a plague is. It's it's a, a virus or a bacteria or something. No, that's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word means a blow, as in uh, 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 when you get hit with a with a board. That would be a plaga. Another blow. Uh, the seven angels with the seven last blows. For through them, God's fear is accomplished. We talked about God's fear yesterday. Then I saw something like... This is one of the big words in Scripture. This is I, I've often said uh, the, the largest word in the Bible is as. We're not told to love one another. We're told to love one another as he first loved us. That as changes it all. It involves nails, a crown of thorns, and a cross. As. Um, <clears throat> husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, wives, submit your husbands as to Christ, in other words, not as to a a, a, a slave dealer or or a a Roman nobleman, but as to Christ who loves you. So this word "as" is very important, and the Book of Revelation is full of the word "as." I saw something like as a sea of glass mingled with fire. This word really means a, a transparent. Uh, that's the emphasis of it. That it's something transparent. Uh, remember, glass in the ancient world was, wasn't was that good. It was kind of lumpy and not really very transparent. It was translucent. Light came through it. But this word, I think you can stretch it to say it implies it implies something transparent. Um, let's see. It's well known, I think it is. Uh, plus the thermos. Let me, let me, okay, hit that button. Uh, um yeah, it, it's the word is walinen, which means um, glassy, transparent. Uh, um, uh, that that 
it's as if they were standing on nothing. So uh, on the sea of glass were standing those who had won the victory over the beast. Now remember, uh, the sea in Hebrew thought is something dangerous. And well, they had a point. So, and they're singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and wonderful are your works. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations, who will not fear you, Lord, or glorify your name. You alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So, uh, this righteousness of God is 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 really, uh, it, it's, the righteousness of God is, is it's about... You know, we're talking about the fury of God. When we think of righteousness, we're kind of negative. We, we don't, we don't, uh, righteousness is I'm right, you're wrong. And that's not righteousness in, in the, uh, in the text of scripture. The text of uh, righteousness or, or the, 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 um, the reality of, of righteousness involves mercy. Um, I think a lot of people don't really think about that, um, we always think of justice and I can be just or I can be merciful. No, there's a point at which I, I, I hope I'm not wrong about this, but I think I've shared with you the idea that sometimes God mercy, God's mercy is that he gives us what we're truly asking for. We think, we think we're asking for something good when in fact we're asking something that isn't good. Um, you know, I'm asking to win the lottery and be a billionaire. And maybe the only way God can save my soul is by doing that. So I can realize how miserable it is. A uh, billion dollars miserable? Yeah. Uh, unless you really are a sane human being and a virtuous one, uh, great wealth will ruin you. Uh, uh, or, or we often pray, uh, uh, this is the prayer of adolescence, uh, for, well, at least adolescent girls, guys are always praying for a car, but we we're praying for, uh, 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 this relationship or that relationship. And then two or three months later, we're saying, Oh God, get me out of this mess. So, uh, sometimes we are so persistent in prayer that in his mercy, he gives us what we're actually asking for, not what we think we're asking for. And, uh, you see, we have no one to blame but ourselves. God's justice and his mercy are not contradictory at all. The quality of, of, of godliness involves mercy. And I've shared with you, the, the word for charity is a derivative of the word for mercy in Hebrew. So God is always merciful and God is always just. And sometimes his justice is to give us what we have asked for. And some of us, well, the way we live and the attitude we have, we're asking for hell. So that's a little a little tough. But God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. But there's some people who just insist on going there. So, all right, let's just briefly look at the gospel. Um, oh, dear, let me look at the time. Oh, gosh, it's later than I thought. Um, you know, this idea of... Uh, um, you're not to prepare your defense beforehand. I myself will give you a wisdom in speaking. Uh, the Lord promises to inspire us by the Holy Spirit. This is a dangerous uh, text in a way. 
because I have heard people say, I don't need popes and bishops and priests. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm not so interested in if you have the Holy Spirit. I'm much more interested in if the Holy Spirit has you. I remember a deacon say, standing up and saying that I don't need anybody to tell me because I have the Holy Spirit. <sighs> the Holy Spirit truly does speak in us, but he doesn't speak... Uh, exclusively you know you always have to remember first corinthians the 13th chapter we prophesy in part we know in part you need to be in right relationships god will see you through he will give you the grace in the situation that you need but you cannot presume on that grace that that you need to have a humble attitude toward it and above all to study you know one of the reasons i perhaps the big reason to really know the scriptures well the scriptures give us the vocabulary of the Holy Spirit. If if the Holy Spirit says something to us that is clearly against the sense of Scripture, then we need to question it. You know, that, that uh, you know, for me, when I'm in a situation, sometimes the words of Scripture, having read it my whole life, uh, as long as I've been able to read, <laughs> that uh, I grew up in a home where Bible was important, um, that, that, um, a phrase from the Bible will just leap out at me. And the Bible is the vocabulary of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get it wrong, at least in part, but we can still strive to hear the Holy Spirit speaking clearly and not be afraid of the situation uh, that God will, God will be faithful and see us through. All right, that said, let's go to a break. We will come back with letters, of course. And uh, um, you can call in at 888-914-9149. Did I get that right? 888-914-9149. Wow. So, right. We receive hundreds of your phone calls every day, thanks to the Catholic Order of Foresters studio line. Our sponsor offers flexible life insurance and annuities. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester today. An Illinois Life Insurance Society not available in all states. You can't beat So, well, all right. Um, oh, I just wanted to mention, I, I was, I'm still thinking about the trip I took to Texas for Red Sea Radio. Uh, it's R-E-D-C, Religious Education for the Domestic Church is what that means. But uh, they took me to St. Mary's um, uh, Center on uh, uh, the campus of uh, Texas A&M, and it's just fantastic. The dynamism of the faith in Central Texas was just so impressive to me. Um, uh, you know, it's a very large, uh, Catholic center for the young people of Texas A&M. And, you know, uh, I, I, there was an adoration chapel that just seemed quite full. And, and my host said, hardly, this is a small crowd for this place and things like that. It was just very inspiring. And of course I've mentioned Bishop Olson and, and, um, so many wonderful young men who are really interested in pursuing the possibility of priesthood. So again, I, I just, I was so, I did so enjoy that trip. And, um, 
And also, <laughs> uh, uh, the Texas barbecue is pretty good, too. All right, let us go to phones. Did I say that already? Well, I did I say phones? I meant letters. You, you know what I meant. I'm just a little confused sometimes. Um, this is someone calling in to say they use a certain app. I'm not going to mention it, um, which I, I think I dealt with that a little. Um, uh, JT or his initials. Um, uh, that that um, the commentary uh, for the first reading yesterday, the revelation claims were written by John on the Greek island of Patmos, but the linguistic style, approach, and theology are so different from both the gospel and the epistles. That's assuming he understands the theology. You don't understand the theology of a vision. That's not what visions are necessarily about. Well, this wasn't really, it was, I, it was a vision. He might have edited it or theologized it a little bit, but it's a vision. Um, so... They cannot have been written by the same author. I think that is so fascinating that we are so sure of all this. So I commented that, uh, JT, at the beginning, and and uh, I know I've written different things in different styles in my life. Um, I, I think that certainly John was capable of it. We don't know that. But, you know, when you worry about that, you're forgetting. Um, uh, uh, you were for, we're forgetting uh, when we... When we think about that, the scripture, the author of the scriptures, we believe, is the Holy Spirit. Does it really matter if this was written by John? You know, there's something called the, is it called the Jesus Seminar, or the Jesus Project, where the bunch of, of well-to-do people from from uh, uh, the Chicago area get together and uh, every year, and they decide whether Jesus said something or not. I think that's almost humorous to the point of being presumptuous to say that 2,000 years after the fact, we who are so enlightened are able to, uh, um, we are able to uh, decide what Jesus said and what he didn't. And you see, the thing about that is this sola scriptura bias, that if Jesus didn't say it, then, well, it has less moral uh, uh uh, less moral uh, force than if he did. That's not true at all. You know, for us, the New Testament is inspired from the uh, the first word of the Gospel of, of Matthew, the, the book of the generations of Jesus, to the Amen of Revelation. These books are written, we claim, ultimately by God's Holy Spirit. So if John did write it, didn't write it, it doesn't matter. If Jesus did say this or didn't say that, it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit said it, working through the ministry of the church. Uh, um, so I think that's very important to understand the inspired nature of the text of Scripture. I personally see no good reason to say that John, who was uh, a disciple of John the Baptist, could not have written all of those particular books, even though they may seem different from one another. So I hope that helps a little. Let's see here. Let's see. me. This is another one. Move that little button. Pull this little button. Let's see. Um, I'm excited when you talk about or give information about the Jews, the Jewish faith, uh, who, how practiced insight in the mind of the leaders and the people before Jesus during life on earth. I'm curious as to where I could find this in print. A good reference. You know, I really think that the best book um, in general to do this, the kind of one that got me started... Uh, is uh, 
actually Barclay's commentary on the scriptures. Uh, they were written by, he's Presbyterian, but this was recommended by Fulton Sheen. And Barclay is very, very good about saying, this is what the Protestants believe, this is what the Catholics believe, this is what I hold. He's, he's very clear about that. And uh, he really does have a good insight. I think that's spelled B-A-R-C-L-A-Y, Barclay's uh, uh, daily Bible study guide, I think it's called. And, and it's, it really is good. So that would be my recommendation, having been recommended by Fulton J. Sheen. So if it was just me recommending it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that too seriously. Let's see here. Oh, this is a fun one. This is kind of, is just a cutesy. Patricia, who said, I was listening to your show and 500 miles this morning. It was the other day we played 500 miles, 500 miles. It was a song that I could play because it was G E minor C D seventh on the guitar, followed by a remark about being a child of the sixties. So, so am I. Gave me a great laugh. Gave you a great laugh. It just makes me feel old. Oh, see there it is. Peter, Paul, and Mary. It's a wonderful, uh, humorous uh, author uh, about the "We Are the Folk Song Army." I forget who wrote the song. "We Are the Folk Song Army." In one of the lines um, about the Spanish Civil War, he says, "They may have won all the battles, but we had all the good songs." I digress. Uh, we did think singing songs was going to change everything. Not so much. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, I discovered some popular books. This is from um, Lynn. I discovered some popular books on time management are actually promoting the law of attraction. Manifesting. I was horrified seeing footage of Napoleon Hill offering prayers to some nebulous power, but not mentioning God the Father. Um, so... Uh, I was hoping just to learn to be more efficient and grow my business. Uh, do you know of any Catholic safe books I could learn from instead? You know, I don't. And I, I read this hoping that, that uh, someone can email me uh, good uh, books on time management. There are all sorts of them that, that don't delve into things religious. Um, but uh, I wish I knew one. But if anybody has some help with that, I would certainly be glad to hear it. Okay, let's see here. This is from Alan. And uh, I always say the rosary include with the closing prayer. Oh, God, who's only begotten son. I know some people say this prayer at the beginning of the rosary. Uh, say that again, uh, dear voice in my head. This is live. I looked up time management, colon, a Catholic approach. I, I, it might be worth a look-see. Um, you know, I haven't read it, so I can't recommend it. But uh, uh, if, if, our, our, if my correspondent would like to look it up and... And report in on it, whether it was good. So there you go. Time management, a Catholic approach. Give it a shot. Why not? All right. Uh, let's get back to this letter from Alan. I always say the rosary can conclude with the closing prayer. Oh, God, who's only begotten son. I notice that some people say that prayer at the beginning of the rosary. Is this appropriate or should it always be at the end? Understand the rosary, though it is the, I love the rosary and do try to say it every day. It is still a private devotion. We must have a devotion to the Blessed Mother, the Catechism says. It does not specify what that devotion is. I think one of the best devotions, and I know the devil hates it, is the Rosary. But it is still a private devotion. When you are saying it privately, you have a great deal of flexibility about it. Now, there's some people who are adding a prayer to the Hail Mary. A visionary said we should. I, the, the, the prayer has passed the muster of quite a few bishops. That's fine. It is a private devotion. You may vary it uh, uh, as you see fit. 
When you, however, are praying the rosary publicly with others, you have to agree on what you are praying. And the simple rosary is probably the way to do it. Uh, that prayer usually, in my experience, comes at the end. If you want to start at the beginning, that's fine. There is no hard and fast rule about it. But there is courtesy to the people you are praying the rosary with if you pray it publicly. So agree on that. Um, so, you know, there are some people who who throw in their extra prayer or they they shout over other people to get their, uh, oh, Lord, may thy axe be ground and thy horn be tooted, they're saying. And that, that that's just wrong you know uh, unity in prayer when you're praying publicly with other people is very important so i hope that helps alan all right let's see this is from let me look at the time this is from lynn let's see here lynn uh let's see here um let's see here i mentioned uh father bill Eddy, a great priest this was a while ago um uh, when I returned to the church, this is some, Lynn is saying, when I returned to the church, after 30-ish years away, he was there to ease me back. I knew of him at St. Kieran's. Uh, again, this was a classmate of mine, Father Bill Eddy, and he, he, um, he died after hearing Friday night confessions, and uh, he went back to the rectory, and he had a heart attack while listening to the messages uh, on the message machine. I probably would have gone to bed. Eh, and got him in the morning, but yeah, it's not the kind of guy that Father Bill Eddy was. He he was an exemplary priest and uh, wanted to make sure that there were no emergencies before he he went to bed. And uh, he didn't go to bed. I believe he went to heaven. So thanks for the note on on uh, on Father Bill Eddy, who was an example for all priests. Okay, is it okay to put holy water? Water in a spray bottle. Okay, this is from, uh, I think it's Jose. Uh, um, is it okay to put holy water into a spray bottle and spray it on objects? Thank you. I don't see why it would be wrong to spray instead of sprinkle. I've never heard of doing that. Um, just so you do it reverently. Um, I think a sprinkle is just as good. Uh, but on the other hand, how do you sprinkle it? If you got a a holy water, they call them an asperg—an aspergil. That's a Latin word meaning a sprinkler. Um, yeah, spray bottle. I, I don't, you know, it's its fascinating. People want to know the precise rules for application of holy water. You spray some holy water, you sprinkle some holy water, the devil gets the, gets the idea. And that's what it is. The devil understands symbols very well. And uh, uh, I always say the devil is a good historian. These things are not, sacramentals are not amulets. They're not magic. They are words. God has made all things through his word. God speaking is what does the trick. It keeps the universe in existence and, and it holds back the devil. And the devil is, he understands words. And holy water is, is kind of an application of a priestly blessing. And the devil having is a very good historian, and he has been there throughout history, and he can see the connection between me and the bishop ordained me and the bishop who ordained him and the bishop ordained him and the bishop ordained him all the way back to Christ. And he can see the unbroken chain created by the laying on of, of hands. And 
He understands the message that this thing belongs to God. It is baptized. It is it is purified by this 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 blessing uh, that is a physical blessing that comes to us from Christ. So um, if you want to put it in a spray bottle, well, why not? But the, if you're doing it because you think, well, there will be better penetration and saturation, that's not the point. Uh, if if it, it makes it easier for the appropriate sprinkling, then it's a fine thing. But it is not better or more thorough in any way. I hope that makes sense. Well, that said, let's go to a break. We'll come back with a word of the day. And you can call in. I think we got a lot of phones open at 888-914-9149. That's 888 888- 9149149 desk any question you may have provided it's not about mechanics or the stock market Today, we'd like to thank Koi who's listening in California for donating their Isuzu work truck. Join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles by visiting relevantradio.com slash car today. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the... Ah, yes. One of the great Kami Pinko songs of the early 19th century. I, I actually have a friend who who uh, knew Woody Guthrie, <laughs> who wrote that song. Um, at any rate, uh, the 50s, oh, the 60s, whatever they were, the 70s. All right, let's 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 go to the word of the day. Give me a word. Any word, and I show you how the root of that word is Greek. It's true. The, word of, the root of this word is, in fact, Greek. Eucharist. Uh, charis is a Greek word meaning grace or uh, it's, it's a, a, a gift. It can mean a, a, an undeserved favor. Uh, and eu, when you see EU, that means well, like uh, eugenics, which is misnamed, means, means well-born. Uh, it's it's uh, very misnamed. Um, it means killing people you don't want in the world. Uh, but uh, euthanasia? Uh, Thanatos is death, and euthanasia means a good death, which is also not true. It's a very bad death when you are when you commit um, willful self murder. But that eu means well, so eukaristin it means thank you. Now, the uh, the 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 rabbis say, and I, I think the Talmud says. That uh, and of course the Talmud we don't believe is inspired, but it has interesting historical detail in it. the The word they said that that when the Messiah comes, all the sacrifices of the law will cease except the Thanksgiving sacrifice, the Kurban Torah, which involved bread and wine, uh, and was eaten in the in the in your home in Jerusalem after you'd offered it in the temple. Uh, and it also involved a lamb. So and it was a sacrifice that was offered when you had been saved from death. All the sacrifices of the law would pass away except for uh, this Thanksgiving sacrifice. We wouldn't need sin offerings because when the Messiah comes, there will be no more sin. We wouldn't need all of these other offerings, just the Thanksgiving sacrifice. And the disciples, I think, realized that 
what Jesus had done at the Last Supper was this messianic sacrifice that had been foretold and that they were expecting. So that's what the word means, Eucharist, the Thanksgiving sacrifice, the, 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 the messianic banquet. So as I said at the beginning of the show, for, for us, every time we go to Mass, it's Thanksgiving Day. So I think it's a very appropriate thing. I hope you do go to Mass tomorrow and offer thanks to the Lord, because that's what this is about. So remember, Thanksgiving, uh, uh, it's a big deal with us to be thankful is is to realize God's providence has not let us down. All right, let us go to phone calls. There is something the matter with your fin. Let us go to Michael. Our phones are fine. Michael, what can I do for you? I have been dealing with the thought of our forever being a progression of eternal time and God's forever, which is defined as eternal now. So I die and I go into his eternal now, or, um, uh, and there's lots of implications here because if I'm sinful, I don't get, I don't, I'm kind of still grabbed a hold of here and now, and I need purgatory, but um, I'm still, yeah. It's yep. a little confusing. Um, the word in Hebrew is olam, which actually I think is related to the word for horizon. So uh, eternity is beyond the horizon. It's beyond what we can perceive. St. Paul says, eye is not seen, ear is not heard. Time is, is called the measure of change. And when there is no change, there's no time. Um, we can't conceive of timelessness, but the word eternal means exactly that, eternal uh, timelessness. Uh, in, in, uh, in Latin, they talk secula seculorum, into the age of the ages. In, in Greek, they use the same for into the age. In Hebrew, it's this lolam, which means beyond the horizon. I think that's what it means. What's the difference between eternity for us? Uh, scripture says uh, elsewhere, we shall know as we are known. Right now, I know with my senses. In heaven, I'm not going to have the senses that I have here, at least until the resurrection. So I will have to know in the way that God knows. I will I will lean on the knowledge of God. Um I suspect that what happens when we die is that time ceases. Time begins to cease, and we are who we are. How we experience things in timelessness, I, I don't know. I've never been there. But uh, I know that for God, all moments are now and all places are here. I I firmly believe that, uh, his omniscience and his omnipresence. And I will participate in that. I won't... I won't be infinite as in my knowledge and my awareness as God is, but in dependence on God, I will know as I am known. I don't know if this helps at all, but I don't think we can understand it, you know, that because we are simple and we live in time. Uh, um, and what it, what it will be like to live outside of time, who knows? Now, physics is fascinating, and I know nothing about it, but I'm fascinated by it. It is fascinating to me that the time is not an absolute. There's an old comedy routine from Second City that talks about the old professor, and he is lecturing on time and the universe, time and space, and he looks at his watch and visits a German X, and he says, tick, talk. 
That was all the time there was anywhere in the universe at that time. He is wrong. That's not true. The time speeds up, slows down at the speed of light. Time is, is, is a relative idea. Time can be bent and time can be sped up, slowed down in physics. And I don't understand that. And that's the material world. I don't know that I'm helping you at all, but I am joining you in your, in your questioning of it. Does that help at all? It, <laughs> it widens all of the possibilities tremendously, like infinitely. Well, there you go. <laughs> that might be of some help. Lord, you, you, you're in charge of this. I'll trust you when I get there. God willing, I do. Well, there. Thanks Amen. for calling in, Michael, and I hope that helps somewhat. Let, let's go to Angela now from Newport, Rhode Island. Hi. Hi, Father Angela. Simon. Good. What can How I do you? for you? Pretty oh, good. I'm Pretty sorry. Good. Well, you don't sound good. I hear you sniffling. Do you have a cold? Well, I'm, I'm, no, I don't have a cold. I just have old age. But what can I do for you? I feel good. <laughs> you look good, too. <laughs> oh. Father Simon, I learned through... Uh, Recently, that I'm 20% Sephardic oh. Jewish oh. and 3% Ashkenazi. Mm -hmm. And however, both my parents are Italian from Italy. My mom's yeah. from Naples. My dad's from Puglia. I'm also, yes. I learned, 33% Greek. So I thought yep. I was 100% Italian. Help. Well, you are. You're 100% <laughs> Italian. Now, you know, those DNA tests, what they do is they tell you, where the genes that you have occur most frequently they don't they don't tell you where you're from so much as they tell you the the areas where you have a commonality now being italian you would of course be part jewish and part greek there is a a uh, small uh, brook uh, <laughs> not much more than a ditch in italy south of that little brook which is somewhere south of rome the, the area was called magna gratia great greece you are probably more genetically Greek than many of the Greeks in Greece. Uh, and then also there were, uh, when the, the temple was destroyed, the, the people who survived the siege of Jerusalem were brought as slaves to Italy. There's a huge admixture of, of uh, Greek in Southern Italians and a huge admixture of Jewish in Southern and Roman Italians. So it's absolutely natural that you would be, that you would have the same genes as, uh, uh, as, as, as Jewish people and as Greek people. But you can probably go back generation upon generation upon generation and your people lived in what is today Italy. Does that explain the mystery? Well, does that mean my Italian side was all, they were also slaves that lived with the Jewish slaves? Well, and the Italians meditated. might have been the masters. <laughs> the Italians might have been the masters and the slaves might have been the Jews. I mean. Because they fled uh, uh, Spain, right? Well, no, they didn't they flee Spain. Spain. They, they, they fled the Holy Land. I mean, there's been a population of Jews in Rome. Free Jews, not slaves. Free Jews since oh. the time of Christ. Second oldest well, so, population, the voice of my head is saying, and they great, great restaurants in the in the Jewish ghetto in Rome. And they have a lovely wow. synagogue. So this yeah, the, is exciting news. Yeah, it is. It is. And remember, the first generation of Christians, the majority of them were Jewish. What we would call Jewish. Wow. I mean. I mean, the apostles were Jews. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. 
So, so you know, you're in good company, uh, being a, having a lot of uh, Judean genetic material in you and being a Christian, that's as it should be. So there you go. Why not? Everybody thinks I must have some Jewish in me. I did the, 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 the DNA thing and not a drop, <laughs> except I am one out of 300 of my ancestors uh, was an East Siberian nomad. He must have been terribly lost to end up in Germany. I, I don't know that it's true, but who knows? Those, those tests, they tell you not your ancestry so much as the places in the world or the groups in the world with which you share a genetic commonality. So your people have probably been Italian since since Hannibal went through. So, uh, but but then a few people emigrated from here. A few people emigrated from there. The Greek the Greek is absolutely uh, reasonable because uh, Southern Italy and Sicily at one point were almost uh, totally Greek. They were Greek colonies. So I hope that helps a little. People have asked me if I was Jewish. I don't well, know if it's because of my nose. <laughs> <laughs> well, Italians, Italians, they could pass. So, well, thanks for calling in, Angela. God bless and enjoy. Everything's a gift from the Lord. Let us go to Gilbert, who's calling in from San Jose, California. Gilbert, what can I do for you? Father, um, thank you for taking my call. I'm going to move to a different area where there's less noise. Um, my question is, I, actually, it's two questions. What is the proper way to uh, cleanse all the sacred vessels? And uh, the other question is, are priests obliged to, uh, to clean the sacred vessels? I'm sorry. Well, let, the, uh, let me answer the second question first. That, yes, priests or deacons are obliged to cleanse the sacred vessels. I think a person who is an acolyte, uh, if they're specially delegated, may. But it is it falls to the priest or the deacon to cleanse the sacred vessels, and one does it by pouring water in. Uh, in the old days, you used to pour a little wine in, and then a little wine and more water. Now it's just done with water, but it should be thorough. And uh, the so that's the answer to the second question and and the first question. It's it's done with water, and then you're to consume that water. Uh, you're not supposed to wash it down the sagrarium. The sagrarium is for the disposal of holy water, and the sagrarium is for the the first cleaning of the cloths that are used to purify the sacred vessels. So I hope that answers your question, uh, you know, that uh, um, and care should be taken. I mean, it's a matter of reverence, so... Well, oh, do we have time to go to Laurel from Minneapolis? Laurel, are you with us? Real quick, we got just a minute. Yes. Laurel? Um, yes. I always, wondered, I always wondered why we know that Romans had to crucify people by putting the nail through the distal wrist proximal palm. So right yes. there, right almost on the wrist. Whereas every picture we see, everyone who talks about it, Padre Pio, everybody has it oh, in yeah. the center of the palm. Well, yeah, I have to realize that the stigmatists would have it in the center of the palm because that's the way people expected it. And God was speaking to people in a language they could understand. Any miracle is at the same time prophetic. Uh, but the actual Roman practice of crucifixion was at the very base of the palm, uh, right through what they call the space of Destot. So uh, uh, we see that on the Shroud of Turin. And speaking of the proper way to do things, Drew is coming up. Mm -hmm.